Again, turn with me to uh, the book of Numbers. Numbers, and uh, we'll be looking this afternoon at, again, Numbers chapter 5. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10 uh, as we begin in Numbers chapter 5. We spoke this morning already about uh, some of the aspects of Numbers chapter 5 of keeping the camp clean, but here we're going to look a little more uh, into what chapter 5 says um, concerning uh, keeping the camp clean. And uh, our message is entitled, Making Things Right. Numbers chapter 5, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of camp every leper and every one that hath an issue, and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Both male and female shall ye put out without the camp, shall ye put them that they defile not their camps in the midst of whereof I dwell." And the children of Israel did so, and put them out without the camp. So the Lord spake unto Moses, so did the children of Israel. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, when a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit to do a trespass against the Lord, that that person be guilty. Then they shall confess their sin, which they have done, and he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add unto it the fifth part thereof, and give it unto him against whom he hath trespassed. But if a man have no kinsman to recompense the trespass unto, let the trespass be recompensed unto the Lord, even to the priest, beside the ram of atonement, whereby an atonement shall be made for him. And every offering of all holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring unto the priest, shall be his, and every man's hallowed uh, every man's hallowed things shall be his. Whatsoever any man giveth the priest, it shall be his. Now again, as we uh, are studying this Old Testament book of Numbers, and and uh, we can't just say, well, this is what they did, so this is what we have to do. <laughs> we're not Israel, okay? Uh, we're not living in the Old Testament economy. We're in the New Testament. We're under the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. And yet there are still some very wonderful principles by which God operates and wants us to operate by. Uh, we have, uh, I don't know about you, but I still think it's a very interesting book. Maybe you're bored to death by it uh, so far, but I hope not. Uh, and uh, I realize there are many details that we've not been looking at, but I hope you've been able to understand that there are some valuable lessons for us today contained within the pages even of this Old Testament book. And I believe this is interesting material, and it has a pertinent message for us in the days in which we live. Uh, We have seen the orderly arrangement of the camp, which was a preparation for the wilderness march. Uh, There had to be this preparation. And also, in uh, today's economy, the Christian today needs to recognize that you and I are pilgrims uh, uh, walking through a wilderness, so to speak, of this world. Uh, everything and everyone must be in his place for the walk, the work, the war, the worship, and the wilderness. Uh, all right? Uh, last time we talked about the need for keeping the camp clean. We talked about the glorious presence of God that dwelt in the camp of Israel. And therefore, the camp had to be pure and had to be holy in his sight. And we also said that we as believers today have the presence of God. Uh, we have the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
he indwells us, and therefore we need to keep our camps clean. We need to keep our uh, lives clean and pure and holy so we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, the concept of clean or unclean, it was very vital to the daily life in Israel. Cleanliness involved much more than just personal hygiene. It involved being acceptable to God in what they ate, what they wore, uh, how they conducted themselves at home and in public. And the Israelites were in the infancy of their faith, uh, and God used familiar pictures to teach them spiritual truth. Uh, He compared sin to disease and defilement and holiness to health and cleanliness. Uh, So unclean people were to be put out of the camp, until they were, uh, they had met the ceremonial requirements for re-entry. Now the word defiled is used nine times in this chapter, Numbers chapter 5. And there are actually three kinds of defilement used here or seen in this, in this, uh, uh, passage. We're gonna look at two of them this afternoon, okay? Uh, and the first one is physical defilement. Now, as we said in our last message this morning, we remember we said there are three kinds of physical defilement. We saw that and we see that in verse two. Again, let me read verse two. Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and everyone that hath an issue and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Those are the three kinds of defilement, physical defilement. And again, uh, health and hygiene was involved in these laws. God gave these laws for a reason. Uh, their basic purpose, though, was to teach the Jews the meaning of separation and holiness. Israel was to be a clean people, and this was to be accomplished by obeying God in every area of life. God's people today need to take this to heart. Second uh, Corinthians 7 and verse 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Uh, we need to rec- recognize that if we're going to walk with God, we're going to have to have, uh, we're going to have fellowship with Him. There must be a cleansing that goes on in our lives. God does not bless, nor will He walk with us when we're living in a conscious, in conscious sin. Hebrews 12, 29 says, For God is a consuming fire. Psalm 89, verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. Listen. I want to be careful in how I say this, and I want to be you to be careful how you hear it. But today, a great deal, not all, but a great deal of the problems, the difficulties, the sickness, and the heartache is caused by Christian people who are not willing to deal with the sins in their lives. Too often we shut our eyes to sin, not only in our own life, but we shut our eyes to the sin in other people's lives. Now, in Israel, there were certain ones that had to be put out of the camp. Uh, When we read the book of Joshua, you see that Israel uh, could get a victory at Ai, uh, could not get a victory at Ai because of Achan uh, and his sin and how he had covered it up. It had to be brought to light and dealt with before Israel could have victory. I believe uh, there would be more spiritual living and revival today if more preachers, more church officers, more Sunday school teachers, and those who have a so-called ministry in the church would deal with the sin in their own lives. Sins of the flesh like are like leprosy. 
God will not bless until the sin is dealt with. And so uh, there is a physical uh, defilement. And I think this is very obvious from these, these passages here, but it's also obvious from as we look at the commentaries from the New Testament. But secondly, and we'll spend most of our time here, is interpersonal defilement. Interpersonal defilement. And I want you to notice a very important principle that's given in verses 5 through 10. Now this is where we'll spend most of the time, as I said. Here we're talking about committing a sin against another person. We're talking about our relationships with one another. We're talking whether it be in our families, or in our church, or in the place of business, or at work, in our community, uh, wherever it is. It is saying here that the person who committed a trespass against another needed to confess it and make it right. It wasn't enough just to confess the sin, to say, I'm sorry, and then bring a trespass offering to the priest. In the Old Testament economy, the offender had to pay the injured party or a relative or a priest an amount of money equivalent to the loss incurred and add to it another 20%. Now, in this way, the Lord taught his people that sin is costly and it hurts people and that true repentance demands honest restitution. Again, repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. A relationship between God and the individual cannot be made sweet until the relationship is made right between individuals. You look at 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, it says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. You know, many people think that repentance means shedding a few tears and then going merrily on their way. Well, it's much more than that, I believe. It's making things right by making restitution to the, the individual who's been injured. We are to confess our sins to God. That is true. But we must remember that our Lord also said in Matthew 5 and verse 23 and 24, Therefore, if thou bring thy thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Again, the world has this idea that, well, we shed a few tears, uh, uh, we eat humble pie for a little while, and then everything's okay. And by the way, they like to say, you know, I'm sorry if I offended you. No, it's I'm, you know, I was wrong. I did something wrong. I offended you. And I want to make it right. So many times the apologies that you hear from the world and the, uh, somebody said something that offended somebody and they said, well, if I, uh, you know, if I, uh, offended you, I want to say I'm sorry. And they may even shed a few tears. But I, I'm not against emotions, folks. There's nothing wrong with weeping over sin. I think we don't weep over sin enough. Uh, There's nothing wrong with being overcome by emotions, but again, don't equate the crying with working of the Spirit. Often this is nothing uh, but what is called the sorrow of the world back there in uh, 1 Corinthians. 
And that kind of repentance is really meaningless. <coughs> I read the story of a little steamboat on the Mississippi River. It had an itty-bitty little boiler and a great big whistle. I couldn't find a picture of one, but this is going to have to do. But when the boat was going upstream, it blew its whistle and it would drift backwards. It couldn't go upstream and blow its whistle at the same time. I'm afraid there's a lot of people like that today. Their repentance is like blowing the whistle and they shed a few tears, but there's no turning from sin. There's no turning to God. There's no restitution to the one that they've injured. And for this reason, there's no progress in their Christian lives. I remember when my mother passed away back in 2005. And uh, I know that's a cute baby, isn't it? You say, uh, <laughs> never mind. I just wanted a picture of my mother and my dad. Okay. But I got a hold of my, my mother's Bible. I was going to bring it with me here, but I've got it in my office. But I found a little note inside. It's written inside. And my, it said there something to the effect that my parents dedicated their life, lives to God as farmers. Now, they weren't farmers all their lives, but were, they were at the time. And the time I was born, they were out on a farm and close to Newton, Kansas. But they were willing to serve God in that way, if that's what God had for them. And God must have been working in their hearts for them to give their all to him at that point. For my mother to make that note in her Bible, that they were willing to give themselves to God as farmers. And I'm so thankful I had spiritually sensitive parents. And that's the kind of parents that's the kind of parent I want to be, and I think that's the kind of parent you ought to be if you're a parent here this afternoon. Uh, that's the kind of husband I want to be, a spiritually sensitive husband. That's the kind of preacher I want to be, uh, one that is sensitive and obedient to the moving of the Spirit of God in my life. You know, we can come forward in a service, and sometimes uh, we are overcome with emotions, The uh, and I've, I've done the same thing where my sin was so heavy on my heart and I recognized God's uh, wonderful forgiveness and it just, you know, the tears come flowing. But if we get up from the altar and walk out those doors and really never repented of our sin, then all the tears in the world won't do any good. Again, there's nothing wrong with weeping over sin. There's nothing wrong with a husband or a father weeping over sin. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. So would to God that we had more men who would get right with God and not be afraid to even come to this altar and be an example to their families. If a Christian is going to grow and stay close to the Lord, he or she must counter the effects of pride by confessing their sin to God on a regular basis. And if our pride and our stubbornness and our rebellion that says, I don't need to get right with God, I didn't do anything wrong, uh, it was somebody else's fault, and God doesn't care what I do anyway, uh, those are kind of attitudes that are going to hinder the growth of a believer. And so what does it mean to confess? Confession means to say the same thing or agree with God about any sin. 
It also indicates a ceasing of resistance and an attitude of surrender. Uh, The word confess in the Hebrew is the word uh, which means to throw a stone or arrow away. And this is where the idea of surrender comes. When we confess to the Lord, we look at the life the way God wants us to look at it. And we aren't resistant to him. We have the attitude, you know, Lord, you're right. You know, great men of the Bible confess their sin to the Lord. I think of Aaron in Numbers chapter 12. We'll go on a little farther in Numbers and you see there where it says, Aaron said to Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us wherein we have done foolishly, wherein we have sinned. David, in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 10, Uh, David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And the David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that what I, in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of my, thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Ezra, Ezra 9 and verse 6 says, and said, O my God, I am ashamed. And blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up into the heavens. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. And then I think of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Verse 4 and 5, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. And one more, Peter, in Luke 5 and verse 8, when Peter Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I think we forget about some of these men of the of the Bible and how they were so moved by their sin and by God's holiness. And yet we can just seem like we just keep moving on and we keep sinning and we keep, you know, it doesn't bother us. We don't get, get it right. And we wonder, what's wrong with my life? Why, why, is thing, why do things go haywire? It's because we haven't dealt with our sin. We haven't made it right. All these men agreed with God about their condition. Throughout Scripture, we find that God gives us biblical principles concerning the matter of confession. Notice with me, some of them, notice the sight of confession. To whom do we confess our sin? Again, the answer is not a priest, but we go to the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
Hebrews 4, 4, 14 and 15, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Who do we go to? Jesus. Secondly, the specifics of confession. Be specific with God when you confess your wrongs. Don't just say, Lord, forgive me all my sins. Amen. And sometimes we pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins and that I know about and the ones I don't know about. Well, that's kind of general, isn't it? Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4, David said, For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightst be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. James 5, 16, Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice thirdly, the sense of shame involved in confession. Jeremiah 3.25 We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Now, that was a time when Judah did not recognize their sinful ways before God, and Jeremiah confessed their sins for them and for himself also. Now, I can't confess your sins this, this afternoon, okay? But, I, but each one of us can humble ourselves before God, and we can recognize that we have sinned, we've come short of the glory of God. Judah was not humble before God, and God had to send them into captivity. I wonder what it will take for the Lord to allow to happen in your life or my life before we humble ourselves before him and take care of the sin that's in our lives. There needs to be a sense of shame in our confession. I want you to also notice the sorrow of our offenses. Psalm 38, verse 18, For I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. Now, this is not, I'm sorry I got caught. I had a lot of students. They said they were sorry, but they were really sorry that they got caught. They weren't really sorry for what they did. But this is a sincere sorrow over my sin. Confession does not blame doesn't say, well, I was wrong, but so were you. Uh, how many times has that been our thinking? Yes, I was wrong, but, but you did this. Doesn't communicate pride. Doesn't say, if I was wrong. Again, the celebrities always apologize for something they did in public, and they say, if I have offended anyone, I am sorry. That's not confession. Blame never affirms, it assaults. Blame never restores, it wounds. Blame never solves, it complicates. Blame never unites, it separates. Blame never smiles, it frowns. Blame never forgives, it rejects. Blame never forgets, 
It remembers. Blame never builds. It destroys. We need to be careful about our confession. Are we blaming someone else for it? Well, the devil made me do it. No, don't even blame the devil. Examine your heart and say, you know, I was wrong. Lord, this was my sin. Number five, the stonewalling is absent from confession. True confession has no cover-ups. It involves total honesty. Proverbs 28, 13, He that confesseth his, or covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. True confession offers no excuses. Well, I got, I got angry. Or, I had a bad day. That's an excuse. That's a good reason for sinning, right? I had a bad day. Things just weren't going right. I couldn't help it. I was tired. Confession involves the ceasing of, li- of sinful living. A number of years ago, there was a cartoon in a publication in which little George Washington is standing with an axe in his hands. You've all heard that little story. Before lying on the ground uh, is this famous cherry tree, and he's already to make a smug admission that he did it, that after all, he cannot tell a lie. But his father, standing there exasperated, said, All right, so you admit it. You always admit it. The question is, when are you going to stop it? Okay. Sometimes that's the way our confessions are. Okay, you admit it. Yes, it was wrong. But when are you going to stop it? When are you going to forsake that sin? Stonewalling. Sixthly, the satisfaction involved in confession. When we confess our sin, we demonstrate our repentant attitude by making wrongs right with other people. Uh, This may involve restitution for damages. This is what God is teaching here in the fifth chapter of Numbers. Now, what happens when this true confession is made? What are the results of confession? The results of confession, first of all, there's a cleansing or there's forgiveness. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The tense of the word confess means to continually confess. Confession is to be done regularly. And the result is a cleansing. Secondly, there's a curing or a spiritual healing. Again, James 5.16, Confess your faults to one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, God may chasten us for our sin. And if a person repents, spiritual healing will begin. If the chastening involves physical affliction, he may or may not cure that person. But we confess our bitterness and our anger to the Lord. He can certainly restore our joy. Bitterness is very destructive if it's not dealt with. While working on a building site, a construction foreman thought his workers had hit a cast iron pipe while using a pile driver. After picking up and dropping the huge object, they realized the pipe looked like a bomb. It was a 
pound World War II bomb, one of the largest the Germans dropped during the Blitz, which killed more than 15,000 people. After evacuating the area, the 10-man bomb uh, disposal unit worked for 18 hours before deactivating the 7-foot bomb. Now, unconfessed sin, like an unexploded bomb, can rest in the heart of a Christian or even in a church. Unless sin is deactivated through the confession and repentance, it can cause great damage in a person's life or a church life. And again, I hope no one here this morning is like a bomb ready to go off at any moment. A cleansing, a curing, thirdly, clemency or pardon. Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Zila. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. There was an officer in the army of the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great. He was involved in a plot against the ruler. And though tortured terribly, the officer refused to confess. Realizing the pain that would not break him, pain would not break him, Peter went up to the man, kissed him, and promised him that if he confessed, he would receive not only a full pardon, but a promotion to colonel. The officer was so unnerved by Peter's tactic that he embraced the czar and made a full confession. And true to his word, Peter forgave the man and made him a colonel. The man gave full confession, received full pardon and a promotion. You say, that's unheard of. Is it? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. That's exactly what God did for us. He gave us a full pardon and promoted us. Confession results in clemency or pardon. And then, number four, close fellowship with the Lord is renewed. Again, Psalm 51 Great psalm on confession. Verse 12, David said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy way and sinners will be, un- will be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Restore the joy of thy salvation. That's fellowship with the Lord. Number five, a change in attitude. I don't know if how, how many of you recognize the picture there. You know what that is? Now, some of you young people probably never seen one of those before. It's called a telephone booth. That was before your cell phone. By the way, you know why it's called a cell phone? Because you become 
a slave to it. You're locked up in it. It's a cell, okay? That's extra. But I read about the telephone operator who, when a customer called or talked overtime for a long-distance call, you know he had to put in money in those phones, you know? And if you talk too long, the operator would say, put in some more money. (laughs) Well, she tried to get him to deposit more coins for the call, and even with friendly reminders, the man refused to pay. Instead, he slammed down the phone, being very irate and verbally abusive. A few seconds later, he was back on the phone line, but he was somewhat calmer. He said, operator, please let me out of the phone booth. I'll pay. I'll pay. Just let me out. What had happened, he got, the doors got stuck on the booth. And he mistakenly thought the operator had control of the phone booth doors. And so he thought she'd locked him in. And so the man was gladly paying the overtime charge, and the operator told him to give the doors a good swift kick and free himself. And when he, you know, when we confess or we repent, there's going to be a change in our attitude. Confession leads to restitution, as we already said. But one of the clearest evidences of genuine repentance is the willingness to make right any, uh, uh, any damage that was suffered by the one who was wronged. Restitution is a very important principle in the, in the scriptures. Leviticus 6.4 Then it shall be, because he hath sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found. <coughs> Excuse me, Proverbs 6.31 When if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all substance of his house. Well, that tells me sin is costly. Luke 19 and verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. You see, if we've damaged or stolen something, we have to replace it plus more. If you've damaged a person's reputation with your tongue, then you need to publicly clear that person's reputation. And that will cut down on a lot of slander and gossip, but people are required to do that. But when we confess our sin, there's a change in attitude and an effort to restoration. Now, we've talked about these two kinds of defilement that are mentioned here in chapter 5. We've looked at physical defilement. We've looked at interpersonal defilement. The third type of defilement we won't have time this afternoon, but is marital defilement. And this, wasn't just, this isn't just a modern-day problem, but it's something that's certainly taken very lightly in our society today. I trust as we come back to our study, we'll be able to look at this third one. But what is your need this afternoon? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there a need for you to get things right with someone or also and also get right with the Lord? And I trust the Holy Spirit will search our hearts, see if there be any wicked way in us. Trust we will be courageous enough to humble ourselves before God and man and make things right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.